The epistle is from Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. This is the word of the Lord. Please rise for the gospel. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 11th chapter. Glory be to thee. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. There is no middle ground with Jesus. You are either for him or against him. You either gather with him or you scatter. You are either in the kingdom of God or in league with the devil. You are either light or darkness. There is no middle ground. 
That is a very frustrating thing for people, for humans who generally want to avoid choosing sides. You can do that sometimes when there's a conflict. You can keep quiet and not get involved and stay neutral. That's a comfortable place to be. You can step back and see that there really are no good guys or bad guys in the situation and that in the end, a compromise is probably what's needed. Sometimes you can do that. When your coworkers are arguing about politics or your kids are arguing about some game that they're playing, the rules of which you have no idea, or anyone, anyone at all tries to give you, tries to get you to give an opinion about something that doesn't concern you at all, then it is advisable, it's wise not to choose sides. It's good then not to choose sides, but that's not always the case. There are times when there is no middle ground. There is no neutral territory. In war, for instance, on the battlefront, the question of whose side you're on becomes very, very important. I just read a book about D-Day, and it's a great example of this. Think about the invasion of Normandy in 1944, when the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy. There was no middle ground. There was no neutral territory. Either you were a German getting shot at by Allied soldiers or you were an Allied soldier getting shot at by Germans. You couldn't just sit down and say, hey, I want no part of this. I'm not choosing sides. I'm not playing this game. You couldn't do that. There was no neutral territory. There are also situations where you'd like to think that by not doing anything at all, you're not choosing sides. But in fact, in those situations, not choosing a side turns out to be doing just that, choosing a side. Think about the story of the Good Samaritan. The priest and the Levite in that story are good examples of this. There was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and left him for dead. Three men later came by on the road, and when the first two, the priest and the Levite, saw the man lying there, what did they do? They passed on the other side of the road. They didn't want to get involved. They didn't want to stick out their necks. They thought it was none of their business. They thought that they were simply not doing anything. But in fact, by not doing anything, they were doing something. By not siding with the injured man, they were siding with the robbers. By not choosing sides, they were in fact choosing sides. There was no middle ground in that situation. Either you're helping the man or you're hurting him. That's how it is with Jesus. That's how it is with the greatest, most important conflict in this world. The conflict between Jesus and the devil. Between God's kingdom and the devil's kingdom. There is no middle ground, no neutral territory. Either you are fighting with Jesus or against him. Either you are serving God or serving the devil. It's important that this be very clear. That's kind of why I'm harping on it here. There's no gray area. It's black and white. As much as we like to think that the world is full of gray areas, this is one place where it is black and white. This comes through loud and clear in our baptismal rite. This is what we say when we bring someone, a baby or an adult or anywhere in between, when we bring someone to baptism, this is what we say. The Word of God teaches that we are all conceived and born sinful and are under the power of the devil until Christ claims us as his own. Conceived and born on the devil's side. 
not on God's side. You start out in the devil's kingdom. And then we go on to say this strange thing. We say, Therefore depart, you unclean spirit, and make room for the Holy Spirit in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's the language of an exorcism. Depart, you unclean spirit. We're not saying that the person to be baptized is bodily possessed, like the demon-possessed man in our gospel lesson. We're not saying that they're under the control of an evil spirit who compels them to do things that they do not mean to do. But we are saying that until Christ claims us as his own, the devil has claimed us. We are saying that until we have the Holy Spirit, what we have instead is an unclean spirit in league with Satan. We then go on to ask the baptismal candidate, do you renounce the devil? Do you renounce all his works? Do you renounce all his ways? We're asking about loyalty, allegiance. Whose side are you on? You were on the side of the devil. Baptism means that now you're on the side of Christ. You know that baptism and the Lord's Supper are called sacraments in the church. They're sacred things. They're sacraments instituted by Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus takes water and combines it with his word to wash us clean in baptism. Jesus takes bread and wine and combines it with his word to become his body and blood. And he gives us to eat and drink for the forgiveness of our sins. Those are the sacraments. But there's a use of the word sacrament that has a history earlier than its use in the church. In the Roman army, the sacramentum, the sacrament, was an oath. It was an oath of allegiance sworn by soldiers. They swore that they would be loyal to the army and the emperor and the Roman Republic. And they occasionally received a tattoo and perhaps a new name as a sign of their new identity. They were giving up all other allegiances, forsaking all others and picking a side and devoting themselves to it entirely. That's just what happens in baptism. In baptism, when God washes you clean and forgives your sins, your allegiance to the devil is severed. You're forsaking him. And God is enlisting you into his ranks. You become a soldier in God's army. You receive the sign of the cross in the name of the Father and Son and of the Holy Spirit, a sign that shows who you belong to. And you receive your Christian name, the name by which you are named before God. There's no gray area in baptism. It's black and white. Before you were darkness, now you are light. Before you were in league with the devil, and now you are a servant of Christ. Now, in our gospel lesson, something happens that we should pay close attention to. The opponents of Jesus know that there are two sides, God's side and the devil's side. Their trouble is they cannot tell which side Jesus is on. Jesus has been doing all kinds of miraculous deeds and preaching the gospel, and today he cast out a demon and the people marveled. But some folks did not marvel. What did they say? He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. That name, Beelzebul, is a terrible name. It comes from the name for the chief Canaanite god, Baal, which means Lord or Master. 
And that ending, zebul, Baal zebul, means flies. Lord of the flies. It's where that book that you all read in grade school, it's where that book gets its name. They're saying they think that Jesus casts out demons by association with the God of dead things and decomposing rotten things that swarm with flies. What a terrible thing to say about Jesus. They thought that Jesus was on the devil's side. Why were they so confused? Why couldn't they see that whoever casts out demons cannot be in league with the devil? Why couldn't they see that Jesus was casting out demons by the finger of God, which meant that the kingdom of God had come upon them? Why couldn't they see that Jesus was on God's side? And so to oppose him was to be on the devil's side. It reminds me of another terrible moment for Jesus' enemies. He was standing in a synagogue on the Sabbath, and there was a man who was sick, who was disabled. Now, God's law had instructed the people not to do any work on the Sabbath, but that didn't mean, of course, it didn't mean that they shouldn't help someone in need on the Sabbath. That's obvious. And so Jesus asked the Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Never has an easier question been asked. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? They didn't answer him at all. They were silent. They didn't know the answer to that question. Because somehow this thing that should have been clear as day, black and white, cut and dried, this thing had become unclear to them. They couldn't see. They were in league with the devil, even when they thought that they were on God's side. Now, to make sense of this, I think it's helpful to pick up on the parable that Jesus told in our lesson today. It came and went pretty fast, and so here it is again. This is what Jesus said. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So Jesus wants you to picture the world as a palace. Think of an enormous house owned by someone very, very rich. He's got a lot of stuff, and he wants to keep it safe, to keep it for himself, to protect it from intruders and robbers. And so he arms himself. He has weapons and defenses, and he's on guard, and he himself is very strong. Now that strong man in this parable is the devil, and his goods are the people in his kingdom, the people under his power. And he means to keep them. But remember that the devil is clever. It's not like some miserable hostage situation where you're in a dark cell with little food and water and no idea what's going to happen to you. Life in the devil's palace seems pretty good. That is the life that most people lead. Following the desires of their flesh, living for themselves, happy and content, ignoring the fact that is a life of darkness, a life of disobedience to God's law, on account of which his wrath is coming. That is one of the devil's great lies, that God's wrath is not coming. It's the lie that Paul talked about in our lesson from Ephesians 5. He said, let no one deceive you with empty words. What are those empty words? They're words like, God doesn't punish sin. Your sin's not really that bad. 
Never mind what God says about sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, or any other sin. It's all in good fun. There's no wrath coming. There's nothing to be afraid of. Just enjoy your life in this beautiful palace. In fact, the devil says, you can do all of those things and still be on God's side. That's what the devil says. Remember, the devil often appears as a friend. And he takes things that should be black and white, like it's wicked to do harm and righteous to save life. He takes things that should be black and white and he muddies them all up and says that things really aren't so clear, that God isn't really such a hardliner. What a lie it is. What empty talk. What deceit. Here's how Paul put it. You may be sure of this, that those who practice such ungodly things have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. They're not on the side of Jesus. They're on the side of the devil. But that lie, that lie is how the strong man, the devil, keeps his goods safe. He protects them with lies. Now, in the parable, that's not the end of the story. They're not just stuck there in the palace. Jesus comes on the scene as a stronger man. It's really important to pay attention to here. How does Jesus defeat the man who owns the palace? How does the stronger man prevail? It's rather violent, isn't it? He attacks him and overcomes him. It's combat. In another gospel, Jesus says that the stronger man binds the strong man, ties him up. He takes away his armor, removes his weapons, dismantles his defenses, and plunders his house. He goes after the lies. In order to free the hostages, Jesus attacks the lies that the devil has been spouting. And that sounds like really good news, unless, unless you've grown comfortable with the lies. Unless you've grown accustomed to living in the strong man's palace. That is where Jesus' opponents find themselves in the gospel. Comfortable with the lies, comfortable with a life in the strong man's palace. It's a bit like this. You know how firefighters often make visits to schools, and one of the purposes is preparation. Teaching the kids what to do in the case of a fire. Stop, drop, and roll. Call 911. Stay low to the ground and test the door handles before you turn them. It's showing kids how to be prepared in case of a fire. But then there's this extra bit that's very important as well. It's showing kids also what a firefighter looks like if he comes into your house to rescue you. That's important because a firefighter coming in with a mask and a suit and an oxygen tank and an axe kicking down doors is going to be frightful, terrifying. Especially for a kid who doesn't understand the danger of fire, the first instinct will be to hide. To hide from the sight of such a monster instead of, of course, running to him for help. That's what Jesus looks like when he comes storming into the strong man's house, kicking down doors and plundering his goods. He comes in with the gospel, upsetting everything, uncovering the lies that people so happily believe, preaching repentance, since the wrath of God is coming. And for those who live comfortably in the devil's palace, especially for those who believe that they are nonetheless on God's side, for those folks, Christ looks like a monster maybe even the Lord of the Flies. Indeed, that's the scandal of the cross. On the cross, what do you see? 
You do not see someone beautiful or successful or healthy or powerful. You see someone weak and dying. You see Jesus bloodied and laboring for breath, a sight that this world calls grotesque and ugly. And you would have to be out of your mind to be on his side. You'd have to be out of your mind to run to him for help. But you know the whole story. You know how vile the devil is, how murderous his lies. This is what you learn here in church. This is what you learn from God's word. His lies are uncovered. And you know that as pleasant as life may appear in his palace, it is a house of death. And you have been set free. In baptism, you were freed from the devil's power. You were given a new identity marked with the sign of the cross. You are on God's side, on the side of light and life and every blessing from heaven. But it is not easy. Although the devil's been bound, he still thrashes and rages. And you, you still live in your flesh, the same flesh which believed his lies in the first place. So Jesus gives us this warning at the end of our lesson. He gives us this warning. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. That is why, when I say that I'm glad to see you here in church, I mean it from the bottom of my heart. This is what you need. The unclean spirit has been cast out of you, and you need to fill that space with the Holy Spirit. You need that. Leave no room for the devil. This is the struggle of the Christian life, siding with Jesus. It begins by recognizing your Savior in his suffering and cross, in his agony and woe, busting down the gates of hell, and plundering the world, gathering up the devil's goods, calling to himself all those who are in possession of the devil, calling you to himself. Stay with him. Walk as children of light. Seek what is pleasing to God. Hear his word and keep it. Blessed are those who hear his word and keep it. Know whose side you are on. And receive from him day in and day out the strength and courage and endurance that you need to carry on by faith in his promises. Trust in him. He will not let you be put to shame. And trust your soul to him. For there is no stronger man than he, and he will guard and keep you to eternity. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.